Hello, friends. You are listening to the Eucharist Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in downtown Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and we are so glad that you listened in. If you would like to join us, we are currently meeting on Zoom, so you can join us from anywhere in the world. We meet at 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, uh, Eastern Standard Time, and we have a, about an hour-long gathering and then a half an hour time afterwards where you can enter into a breakout group to uh, discuss things with either the same people every week or in a, in a group that mixes it up week to week. Uh, also, if you are a part of our congregation in the area of Hamilton, we also invite you to join in on Sunday mornings when we have a community check-in time from 10 to 10.30, and we have a kids program that runs from 9 to 9.30, 9.30 to 10 as well. So you can find all the details for that at eucharistchurch.ca. But for now, we're going to carry on with our sermon series, Reclaiming Christianity. Grace and peace. I'm excited about this week. I'm excited about this text. I'm excited to dive into it a bit. It's almost Holy Week, which begins on Sunday, which is Palm Sunday, where the church traditionally celebrates the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, goes into next week with uh, Monday Thursday, which we don't have a service for, but I, I highly recommend if you're, if you're interested, Googling Monday Thursday. I may even post a, a scripture reading just on our podcast feed to listen to because it's a, a beautiful part of the tradition of Holy Week. Uh, then we'll have Good Friday where we'll be hosting our Wake for a Righteous Man on Friday evening and uh, engaging with the story then of the crucifixion of Jesus. Holy Saturday, which is this lovely day of waiting where I think we all find ourselves so often between death and something new. And of course, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, where we'll gather together and pop in at the park and remember that death does not get the final word, that Christ is risen. So we wanted to pause our reflections on reclaiming Christianity and our discussions in breakout groups around those themes to give ourselves a bit of a time to enter into this season. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got to go scuba diving with Bryden. Some of you here will know Bryden and Tabby. Uh, and Bryden and I went scuba diving and uh, he said, the one thing you got to know is that you can't surface too fast. And I was like, you can't surface too fast. It's like, oh yeah, if you go really deep and then we come up quickly, your body might rebel and you could get nitrogen bubbles that form in your bloodstream. And I was like, in my bloodstream? How'd they get there? Just bubbles can appear in my bloodstream? And he was like, yeah, you got to go slow. So follow my lead as you re-engage. And I've been reflecting on that as we walk towards holy time, holy week. You know, we think that we are on the surface of the world, walking around, uh, but the more I see about reality, the more I sense that it's the exact opposite. That this world of fear and uncertainty, of violence and prejudice, which is obsessed with growth and expansion and rights and privileges and jealousy, is an underwater world where there roam free market capitalists and stock market investors and scapegoating impulses and advertisers and algorithms in billboards and television and in your very pocket right now. And they swim around you and they seek to devour you. I'd humbly suggest that maybe we don't live on the surface at all. Maybe we swim around the dark abyss every day without even realizing the water that we swim in. And that maybe it's Holy times. Holy just means set apart. So it's set apart times, be they traditionally religious, Easter and Christmas and Advent, 
or even birthdays or summer camp, that these moments might actually be more in line with reality, with life on the surface than what we would call a regular life. And if that's the case, then Holy Week provides us with an opportunity to surface, to come out of those depths with all of its pressure and to breathe fresh air again. We surface from the depths of this dark world. And when we do, when we enter into holy time, we tie ourselves back into patterns and into motions and into rhythms that have existed articulated for thousands of years, but I also believe tie us back into cosmic patterns that are millions and billions of years old, these cycles of eternity that God has moved through his creation that allows us to see through the illusion, the spin, the powers of our time and the story that our culture tells us so that we could perceive the more glorious, more loving reality that is always around us and within us so that for one week we might perceive again the kingdom of God. But like scuba diving, I think we have to be a little careful when attempting to enter holy time. We have to prepare ourselves a little bit in body and in spirit, that we have to ready ourselves to move a bit slower, to move slower in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our psyche. So I want you to Feel free to consider tonight an opportunity to slow down, to look ahead, and to begin that slow ascent to reality. So this Sunday, we will celebrate Palm Sunday, the official kickoff to Holy Week. But before Jesus entered Jerusalem, he passed Jericho, where he met a man named Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, would have been considered uh, a bit of a blood traitor to his own Jewish people working for the Romans, who were the occupiers of the Jewish land. And we read this story on Sunday morning at our community gathering, but I want to read it again today as we begin to look ahead to Jesus entering Jerusalem. And then I'm also going to read a parable that is tied to the Zacchaeus story, but that we rarely read in this context. This is a parable that if you've been around church circles at all, uh, no doubt you've heard this, but you may not know it's tied to the Zacchaeus story, and you may not know how much it is colored by the Zacchaeus story. So this week, um, you can't sit back and relax. I'm sorry, you've got homework this week. You've got to be on your toes. Uh, I'm going to read through this scripture text. I'm going to read through the Zacchaeus story. Now, while that's happening, just like let it wash over you. Just enter into it. But then once I'm done the Zacchaeus part, I'll give you a bit of a, a heads up. I'm going to enter into the parable Jesus tells. And what I would like all of you to help me with in this is to pay very close attention to the parable. You can do this with a piece of paper. You could also just do this with your mind. But I want you to pay very close attention to the language that's being used in the parable the different characters in this parable, the mood of this parable. And I just want you to jot down, either physically on paper or just jot down in your mind, what you notice about this parable. What questions you might have about this parable if you didn't assume you knew it. And what afterwards what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you all to write in the chat what you've noticed. Phrases, words, expressions, moments, moods. And you don't need to have any answer for them. You just, I want you to just notice them. And then I'm going to share maybe a couple of reflections based off what we notice and see if this text maybe takes us into places that we wouldn't normally assume it's going to take us. Uh, and I think it might actually lead us then into uh, 
the state of mind to surface into Holy Week. Sound good? Can I get a thumbs up, everybody? Because it's little squares, little rectangles. You know, I need all the love we can get. Okay, here we go. So let's pray before we do and uh, prepare to encounter God and prepare to begin to surface into holy set-apart time. <sighs> holy Spirit, you are with us as we gather together with intent to turn towards you. You are with us as we are scattered, but we're united in our hearts and we're united in our minds and we're united in our spirit and in our soul and in our psyche. Um, we come to you together and ask you to meet us. Open our eyes so that we can see. Open our ears so that we can hear. Open every sense and call everything to, to us so that we might know you better and so that we might experience a holy week unlike any other. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> the gospel text we're going to be reading, you are welcome to read it along with me, is in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Again, I'm going to be reading from this translation that I'm just in love with lately, which is a translation by Orthodox uh, scholar David Bentley Hart. And it just sort of makes the text a little strange again, which I found incredibly helpful um, but it's quite wooden, so, you know, you might hear weird little grammatical things. He's very literal translation. Um, so that's Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read the Zacchaeus part, and then I'll give you a bit of a nod when we move into the parable. And having entered Jericho, Jesus was passing through. And look, a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wished to see who Jesus is and was not able on account of the crowd because he was small of stature. And having run ahead, he climbed up into a sycamore tree so that he might see him because he was just about to pass by there. And Jesus as he came down to the place, looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, be quick, come down, for it is necessary for me to stay in your house today. And making haste, he descended and welcomed him with joy. And seeing this, everyone murmured, saying that he went in to lodge with the man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my possession to the destitute. And if I have taken anything from anyone by falsehood, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what has been lost. Now, I don't know where you picture this right now. I've always pictured it as a dinner scene, them discussing this over the table when Zacchaeus repents. I invite you to picture this in any way, but I do invite you to picture this mentally. There are people around who have been murmuring. Zacchaeus has made a confession. And now Jesus is going to go into this parable uh, that comes right out of this story of Zacchaeus. 
So I'll read that last line again. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what has been lost. And as they were listening to these things, he added a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they thought that the kingdom of God was about to appear all at once. Therefore he said, A certain man of noble birth went to a far country to assume a kingdom for himself and to return. And having called ten of his slaves, he gave them two minas and said to them, Engage in trade until I come. But his fellow citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And it happened that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered that those slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him, in order that he might learn what each had gained in trade. And the first came and said, Lord, your mina earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you were faithful in the least of things. Take authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Your mina, Lord, made five minas. And to this one too, he said, And you shall be set over five cities. And the other came, saying, See, Lord, your mina, which I kept put away in a napkin, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. He says to him, Out of your mouth I will judge you, wicked slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money on a banker's table, and then on coming I would have withdrawn it with interest? And to those standing in attendance, he said, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, it will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. As for those enemies of mine, however those not wishing me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And having said these things, he journeyed on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so before I ask you for your reflections, hands up if you've heard this story before, just to get a bit of a sense of the room. Okay, many of us, most of us. How is it typically presented to you? I'm going to do my best guess as your like youth group pastor or maybe your Sunday school teacher. Um, and like, gee, no judgment on this. But maybe you've heard it typically as God is given us all minas, money, 
uh, one of the translations translates in Matthew 8 as talents, which is just so perfect because then your Sunday school teacher is like, he's giving you talents and they give you a little wink and you're like, oh, talents, you know, double meaning. It's like a money currency, but also I'm really good at hula hooping. He's given you talents or he's given you minas. He's given you resources that you need to steward. It's like Jesus was here and then he ascended to the Father and he gave you these gifts and you need to use those gifts well because someday Jesus is going to return and you're going to have to show him what you did with that. And the thing is that that's actually perfectly faithful, right? That idea is faithful. It's what makes this particular interpretation of the story a little, uh, a little strange because it's so accurate that God has given you gifts. That God has entrusted things to you, your money, your time, your passions, your creativity, your relationships. He's entrusted it to you and he does want you to use it in order to build God's kingdom so that when Christ appears again, we get to celebrate in that new world. But boy, to read it that way, you also have to ignore a lot of really weird stuff, don't you? You know, not least of which the slaughter my enemies before me. I mean, that's a little strange. And all the trading and the cities that you get to rule over in the age to come, yeah, that, you know, it's just like, this doesn't really all quite line up. But it's easy to ignore that stuff because that core, that core message that people pulled out of this text is true. But what if we were to say, yes, that is true, but maybe that's not what this text is pointing us to. Maybe that's not why Jesus taught this parable. And so I want to invite you to set aside the assumptions you might carry about this text and to revisit it as if you didn't assume you knew what it was saying. Does that make sense? And, and from that place now, I wanna ask, what stuck out with you? What stuck out to you about this parable? And I invite you to write it in the chat window, and I'm gonna to attempt to grab some of these as we go. We've got hula hooping for the Lord, wasn't my talent, but very familiar with this don't waste it translation. Which is true. I don't want to attack anyone's Sunday school teacher. God, those, those people were just given of the good of their heart. So we're not, we're not attacking any other translation or interpretation. But I do want to revisit this. So what stuck out to you? Start typing it in. Slavery. All right. So <laughs> got lots of good stuff here. So first of all, yeah. Notice how this translation translates the word slave in a very blunt way. It doesn't say like his servant. It's just the word is slave. The idea is slaves. These are people who are owned by someone with power. Yes. Kelly and Chris say, in the intro, the master comes off as an imperial, power-hungry maniac. Yes, he sure does. He wants to secure property and land for himself, and he's going off to get authority to do so. And we don't exactly know within the parable what that means, but that is where he's going. Uh, Cindy says... I googled how much Amina was, approximately $500 today or four months wages in Jesus' time. Yeah, I did a bit of math today to try to give a bit of context. So Amina, this is such bad math, but I think it helps. It doesn't quite work sociologically, but Amina was worth about 100 denarii and the average worker made one denarii a day. So it's 100 days wages. So I looked up what the average Canadian makes a day just to get some ballpark. The average Canadian gets paid about $26 an hour, which for some of you is a fantasy and for some of you, you're way beyond. It's an average number, um, but average $26 an hour, so about $214 a day. So if you times that by 100, we are looking at, in very ignore all the sociological realities, something like $21,500 is what was given to each of these slaves. 
and they were then to engage in trade to get it. Now, the one who uh, got five times as much is saying in the weeks or months that this master was gone, he has made $107,000 for him off the $20,000 given. But another slave has made 10 times that. He's made $215,000 on $21,000, which does get you to ask a couple of questions, doesn't it? Like, how do you get a 10 times return on investments in the ancient world when there is no GameStop to invest in? You follow me on that? How does this happen? So let's keep going. How does this line up with the character of God, Janelle says? How does this picture of power trouble me? Yeah, this does seem like a little bit of a, this does seem like a little bit of a troubling picture of power. Certainly we know God is power, but this does seem troubling. Jean Viev says, I love this, great observation, Jean Viev, that the, the ruler says, those who have will get more, but those who do not have, even what they have, will be taken away. It's a very harsh moral to the story for Jesus to be stating if this is about God and his kingdom and how God's kingdom works. Uh, Lisa says capitalism. Yeah, yeah, capitalism. There's certainly an element of free economic trade going on. Jill wrote, I always felt sad for the guy who did his best and got blasted for what he felt was right. And we're going to get back to that guy in a moment. Nate says the slave who hid money came as sort of a moral compass as opposed to a wasteful hoarder. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Cindy says, 215K. Seems like it's not enough of an ROI to let someone be ruler over 10 cities, though. Good question there. We would have to ask, what is a city at that time? And how much money was that worth? Again, a lot of sociological realities. Cities also might be a translation that means more like a town or a couple of properties or perhaps a couple of households. We'll get to that later. Uh, Meg says, when asked to give the extra minas over to the first guy, the people said, but he already gained 10 minas. Yeah, he already has so much. Cindy says, nepotism much. Assuming the kingdom is the confidence of entitlement, Steph says. Excellent, 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 everybody. This is so great. A uh, couple other things. Well, I'll give you one more second if you want to write anything in. I'll share a couple things that I notice about this. First, in this parable, unlike other parables of Jesus, did anyone note that this wasn't uh, framed as the kingdom of God is like? There was no the kingdom of God is like. Now, does anyone remember how this story is framed? What it says about the reason Jesus tells the story. I'll let someone type that up while I read the next comment here. Rachel and Drew write, it's an analogy for traditional Roman tax collector collection. You would bid on how much you would collect and pocket the difference for yourself as a tax collector. Well, Rachel and Drew, interesting observation. So yes, they're making money through some sort of game. And boy, it comes right after a story about somebody. And what was his job again? Something like he would collect taxes unjustly, which I will say was not illegal. It was not illegal for tax collectors to skim off the top, but it was immoral. Sarah Gardner says, yes, Sarah, good find there. He told them it, I'll read it exactly from the text again. <laughs> As they were listening, he added a parable because because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought, we don't know quite who the they is, but probably Zacchaeus and the other guests at his house for the meal, they thought that the kingdom of God was about to appear all at once. So if you're Zacchaeus, and you've been ripping people off for a really long time, 
and you encounter Jesus, and he seems to be the fulfillment of the Christ, the Messiah you've been waiting for. And you suspect that as he marches into Jerusalem, he's going to reclaim the temple. And after reclaiming the temple, what's he going to do? He's going to do what the Jewish revolutionaries have always done. He's going to attack the Romans. And so there's a question here of what Zacchaeus has experienced in his heart. Because we have no indication that he has not experienced a genuine repentance, a genuine change of heart. Not only that, he's paying something like reparations to those he has wronged because his heart has been so changed by God's break in-breaking kingdom. And also, it might be convenient timing to repent so quickly if you think the kingdom of God is about to appear all at once. And for you, if you're a Jewish person, the kingdom of God is not a spiritual world somewhere else, but is a reality of the Romans being kicked out and the Jewish people being established again. And so you might also think, you know, it's about time to get in on this Jesus movement because the Romans might be out of power soon if this guy is the Messiah. And now I believe he's the Messiah. And so I'm choosing to hedge my bets with God's work, no longer the Romans' work. And also, it might not even come back to bite me in the butt because the Romans might be out of power in about a day or two. And so Jesus, in a sense to sort of sober him up, says your heart change is real. And you are believing the right things now. But you don't understand that this isn't going to appear all at once. Because there will be consequences to no longer collecting the amount of money he's collected before. There will be consequences to him no longer participating in the social circles he's participated in. And those consequences need to be counted as a cost if he is going to live in the liberating kingdom of God. As Joel said, opportunistic would fit the character. I feel like Zacchaeus had a genuine heart change. I would personally not call him an opportunist, although I think you could read it in the text faithfully. It's, there's something in there. But, but I do think there's maybe a little bit of naivety or maybe even a little bit of, um, a, little bit of a sense that, you know, this is all going to work out quite quickly. What a convenient timing for my repentance. Uh, so let's talk a bit about how they might make money. In this culture at the time, you would make money, again, without a stock market, by lending money out. And I used to know the interest rates, and I, couldn't, uh, I didn't have time to find them again, but they were exorbitant interest rates if you couldn't repay uh, money that had been lended at this time. The interest rates would be so high that most Jewish farmers or most small cities slash towns that would have a farm and land around them, if they received a loan and couldn't repay it, the hope of the lender would actually be that they default on the loan. So they pay back as much as they can, but being unable to pay it back quick enough, they end up having to default on the loan. And then what do you get from them? You get the land. And in a time where land is more important than money, and when land is tied to the promises of God, land is now entering into the hands of whoever this man, this noble man, this man born to a noble family, now possesses the land that is God's people's land, tied to the promise for those people. Are you feeling the tensions of this already? And then is it any surprise that the one who makes 10 times gets to rule over 10 properties? And the one who makes five times is able to rule over five properties. Are you guys tracking with me on what's going on here? If you can get the land and the money, 
then the land has to be ruled over by someone. Someone has to rule over the land in order to continue to monitor the land for this person of noble status. And they've been trustworthy to squeeze money out of God's people with little things. Now they will also be entrusted with land. Not that there's any echoes, by the way, to our world today, <laughs> as we have debates about land and whose it is and whose it isn't is. Uh, the Jews also, if you want a, more evidence that this is some suspicious behavior, look up in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Even just do a Google search with the word usury or lending and see the general attitude at the very least of how God speaks to his people about lending out money at an interest. Now, all of that is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and maybe reframes this story. But let's also add one other detail. Uh, does it change anything to know that Herod Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great, Herod the Great's the one who tried to murder Jesus as a baby, one of his sons, Herod, he had like five sons, he named them all Herod. I don't understand these things, but you can read the Wikipedia entry. Herod Archelaus was made king by his father over the region of Judea. And you know what cities were in Judea? Jerusalem, where the temple was, and Jericho. And where is Jesus when he's talking to Zacchaeus? One of the only times it's mentioned in the Gospels? He's in Jericho. In fact, Herod Archelaus would later die in the city of Jericho. And this is during the lifetime of Jesus, when Herod Archelaus gained power, he had to go and secure that power by taking a pilgrimage and a trip to Rome so that Caesar Augustus could name him the true and proper king over Jericho, Jerusalem, and Judea. But when Herod Archelaus went to go and get power from the Caesar, the Jewish people who were being ruled over sent a dispatch to follow him. And the dispatch went to the Romans and went to Caesar and said, please do not make this man ruler over us. And this made Herod Archelaus so upset that when he came back, he ordered the army to go into the temple. He rounded up many of the young men who did not want him to be ruler over them. And in the temple, he slaughtered 3,000 Jewish people. And this would all be in fresh memory for the Jews at this time when Jesus is there. Does that change anything about a story where a man of noble birth claims privilege over a country, leaves to get it established somewhere else in a far-off land, also the language that Jesus uses in the parable of the two sons, says the younger son went to a far-off land, often associated with being distant from God, and that while he was there, some people used his resources to claim more money, and when he returned, he received the money that was given to him at incredible, incredible gains, gave properties, villages, cities to those slaves who were faithful to exert money from God's people, and then called for those who did not want him to be the ruler to be slaughtered at his feet. Do you think they'd have any echoes to their own history? This would be like today saying, you know, uh, there was a man with golden hair and a racist heart who st stirred up his followers to storm the sacred halls of the institution of politics, you wouldn't take you long to figure this out. And nobody, 3,000 people didn't get slaughtered that day, you know? But you would still be able to pick up what's happening. In this story, I would suggest 
we don't have the story about Jesus giving us gifts to be entrusted while he's gone. True as that is, I think in this story we have a story about three slaves. Two slaves who are willing to play the game of the world. And one slave who decides to put his loyalty into a different kind of kingdom. He wraps the money in, uh, the word is actually, the, the napkin is like a dirty handkerchief. He wraps dirty money in a dirty handkerchief and he buries it into the ground. Quick question for you by way of poll. What do you, oh, you don't need to answer it with a poll. You just think about it for a second. I like polls, but it doesn't work in this case. <laughs> do you think it's more work to just walk into a money lending area and put money on the table to collect interest or to dig a hole and bury money somewhere where nobody could find it? Which do you think is easier? Digging a hole is no fun, right? It's not like they had excellent shovels or forklifts. Like they had to dig a hole and then make sure no one knew the hole was there and hide dirty money in the hole. But this slave is making a statement about where his loyalty lies, about what he will or will not participate in. And I think that this third slave is actually the one Christ is pointing to as some sort of reminder to his people about what it might cost to enter into the kingdom, about what it might mean for our previous allegiances, and about what it might look like to wait patiently for a kingdom that is coming when you've already started living in it. So I'm going to say three things about this text uh, to kind of just help us think about this, and then I'll be done. But I don't want to give any real big conclusions. I'm just going to make kind of three sweeping observations, and then I want to just leave you marinating in this story as we walk towards Palm Sunday. So the first thing that this observation uh, of this text makes me think is that we often miss our own blind spots. Because one of the questions that we'll talk about in our breakout rooms is how have we missed this quite obvious interpretation of this story for so long? And how did we make it such a bizarre kind of bending the story around our own interpretation? And I think it's a reflection of the ways that we are blinded by our culture, by our technology, by our values. And that often when people have had issues with Christianity, we've run off to other directions because of the issues that we've had instead of potentially removing what is troubling about the way our faith has been handed to us but recognizing that it is actually much deeper than we know this interpretation to my understanding was reclaimed by liberation theology which was a theological movement done by people on the underside of power who read this story in a place much more similar to how the Jewish people were situated in the first century, and who said, oh, this is obviously a story about not participating in unjust actions. They got it quickly. But for many of us, liberation theology, I mean, what is that? That the Christian stream, I guess what I'm saying, is so much bigger than we can imagine. And Rather than when we have issues with our faith, running off to some other stream, running off into the wilderness and trying to do it alone, I want to encourage all of us, myself included, to actually dig deeper into the tradition we are a part of. To not assume that the little, tiny, little insignificant piece of the Christian stream we've seen is the whole thing. 
It's not. And far too many of us are quick to write off our own scriptures and write off our own faith without really spending the time to understand it. And that sounds a little harsh, but I mean, I, I, I'm online enough to see tons of people write off Jesus and Christianity and the church without ever really understanding it bigger than the slice they were given. So for me, this is an incredible, when I found this translation, when I read this and was taught this, it was so humbling to me to realize how little I knew and how much I had to learn about even the faith I belong to. Number two, sometimes Jesus isn't making a point. He's just stating reality. I think about that line, those who have will receive more, but those who have not, even what they have will be taken from them. And I used to read this and I'd be like, Jesus, why do you believe such a horrible thing? As if Jesus is like, and it's my favorite way. And I just love it. I love when those who have much get more. And boy, do I love taking what little those have had. You know what? I, it's like, no, maybe Jesus is just like, you cannot like this, but this is the way the world works, right? How many of you at work have a coworker who, because of their privilege, their personality, their relationship to the boss, keeps getting more and more and more. And those who have little have it taken away. In science, apparently this is called the Matthew Principle, which is that scientific discoveries are often named after people who didn't actually discover it, but they're the people with power, with hiring, with research teams. And when one of their little slaves makes a discovery, they get to claim it. Because that's just how the world works. Those who have will get more, and those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. And there's no point in hiding ourselves from this harsh reality when Jesus invites us to engage with it, to name that this is the way the world works, and then to take note of what it will mean to be a part of a different world. And finally, an observation that the kingdom of God isn't going to appear quickly that there will be a cost to us whenever we try to live in the kingdom of God. It will be difficult to live more in the surface when everything around you and everyone around you is used to swimming in the deep waters. Edward Snowden, the first women who spoke up in the Me Too movement, Colin Kaepernick, these are people of conviction who knew that something was wrong, and who knew when they spoke the truth, it would not be popular right away. They knew that there would be no applause. There would be no reward for speaking the truth. But they did it anyways, because they knew it was right. They were the first fruits of justice, and they knew it was time. They were like Zacchaeus or the others listening who had in some way become a part of God's kingdom, whether they'd call themselves Christians or not. In some way, they had become aligned with the values of the surface world. And anyone who steps into that role has to know that the kingdom of God is not going to appear immediately. Now, whether you are called in your own life to bury the mina or not is ultimately between you and your creator. And you may have to bury some minas and not others. This is complicated stuff. But when you love without expecting in return, when you give generously, when you refuse to gossip or slander at work, when you speak in solidarity with those who are suffering, when you're skeptical of the powers around you, especially those social media powers, 
when you question the presuppositions about the way things are in your particular bubble, there will always be a consequence and rarely will it make your life easier. But to quote Christ, in this world you will have troubles. Take heart. I have overcome the world. As we gather here on a Wednesday night when you could be watching Netflix or going for a walk or doing any number of other things, I have to believe that at least our hearts are in that place where we want to want to enter that kingdom. And so I'm going to read the parable one more time as we close. And I invite you this time to hear it with fresh ears, to marinate in it for a moment, and then we'll enter into a time of prayer. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what has been lost. And as they were listening to these things, he added a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought that the kingdom of God was about to appear all at once. Therefore, he said, a certain man of noble birth went to a far country to assume a kingdom for himself and to return. And having called ten of his slaves, he gave them two minas and said to them, engage in trade until I come. But his fellow citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. And it happened that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered that those slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might learn what each had gained in trade. And the first came and said, Lord, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you were faithful in the least of things. Take authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, your mina, Lord, made five minas. And to this one too, he said, and you shall be set over five cities. And the other came saying, See, Lord, your mina, which I kept put away in a napkin, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. He says to him, Out of your mouth I will judge you, wicked slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money on a banker's table? And then on coming, I would have withdrawn it with interest. And to those standing attendants, he said, Take the, the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, it will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. As for those enemies of mine, however, those not wishing me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And having said these things, Jesus journeyed on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Please, please.